I have something I was asked to read, but it's, uh, I can't tell you who gave it to me, but just, pay, just listen, listen to this. He is a man of his word, not a frog, not a bird, king of the earth, related, not by birth, father of my life, helpful towards my strife, glittering and flying hope, my head spins like a globe. Yet I see him crystal clear, right through glass, smooth and sheer. Then my heart will jump and smile, for he makes life all worthwhile. My head is running steady now, as our great Lord takes his bow. (coughs) Excuse me. I want all of you to know that God loves you very much. The reason I keep this um, anonymous is because I don't want this poem to be about me. I want it to be about God. I love this beautiful family that my Lord has blessed me with, and I pray that all of you stay and become close with Jesus. I cannot tell you who that came from, but that's evidence, (coughs) as you (coughs) pointed out, that there is growth happening. Things are moving right along. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Pulling the weeds of legalism. Now, legalism can be defined as a strict adherence to the law. A legalist believes that performance is the way to earn favor with God or to gain favor with God. Another way you can define legalism is the human attempt to gain salvation or prove one's spirituality. It's outward conformity to religious lists of do's and don'ts that are often described in Christian terms and behavior. Now, before we move into our text and talk about this, there are some observations that you and I must note about the issue of legalism. First of all, we tend to think other people are legalistic while we're thinking that we're not. I mean, after all, our sins don't stink as bad as theirs. We're legalistic by nature because we tend to judge people by our own standards. Legalism is also highly contagious. It will spread like a virus through a congregation. It can take a vibrant faith and make it dull and lifeless. It evaporates enthusiasm, jettisons joy, and stifles spirituality. Instead of finding freedom through Christ, Many become burdened and heavy laden. Legalism produces large quantities of self-righteousness, judgment, and condemnation. Legalism makes you and I narrow and divisive because everyone must be like me. And it's impossible for people to see Jesus as he truly is because when we're legalistic, they see a drill sergeant rather than a savior. And if we're not careful... Everyone in the sound of my voice, we can become, or we can default to performance-based discipleship. And if we truly desire to pull the weeds of legalism, we must focus on two truths. Number one, remember our legal standing. And we saw that back in Colossians chapter 2, verses 19 through 15. And we must resist the temptations of legalism which is our text this morning, Colossians 2, 16 
through 23. So let's look at the text this morning. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to degrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Let's back up to where he says, no one is to act as your judge, literally judge you. Now, although no one can control the attitudes or actions of another, individual responses to those who judge can be controlled. So Paul is concerned about how the church is going to respond to what they're being told here. And he warned the church not to give in to persuasion, not to be brought under bondage to these teachings by willing submitting to regulations that did seem spiritual. See, the false teachers here were attempting to enforce regulations on the church that were foreign to the Spirit of Christ and unnecessary for the Christian faith. Their message was non-Christian. It reflected matters of personal choice and had little to do with one's relationship with Christ. Now, the substance of the false teaching was a ritual observance of the law. Look in the text. He says, let no one judge you in regard to food or drink. Now, the question of diet was an emotional issue in the first century because it was a matter of application of the Old Testament law. And it boils down to clean and unclean meats. Jesus addresses the issue so clearly that Mark applies the statement to the matter of meats in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. Basically, Jesus says, it's not what goes into, into your stomach that defiles you, but the follows was coming out of your mouth because reflecting of the heart. Peter came to believe in freedom to enjoy all meats when he had that vision in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, when the sheep came down from heaven, had all the meats on it, he came to realize, well, I can eat that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 10, Paul addressed it, the question of meat offered to idols. Some taught that you can't eat meat that's dedicated to idols. Some said, I don't care who it's been dedicated to. You can need it. But emotions, well, I want you to know the emotions were equally strong in both, both groups. And it came back to the Jewish law and the Old Testament concept of the uniqueness and holiness of God. At Colossae, the Jewish nature predominated. Questions of Jewish law about eating clean and unclean meats as forbidden or condemned in the Old Testament. And the aesthetics added to Old Testament regulations made them more intense. And aesthetics means... Severe treatment of the body. It can be uh, severe treatment of the body. It's where you, 
You take self-denial and you place like a tenth degree on it. It can be as so severe as people taking themselves and whipping themselves on the back. It could be piercing or cutting themselves. It could be taking fasting to a whole new level. That's what's going on here. This is also in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. Now, some of the Gentile setting were wondering, should we worship on the Sabbath or we worship on Sunday? How about all these pagan holidays? Should we, is it okay for us to observe them? Of course, the Jewish people were concerned about special days, like feast in Leviticus chapter 23, the new moons in Numbers 10.10 10 and 2811, and Sabbaths, Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, and Exodus chapter 31, 14 through 16. All those were more than just legal requirements. They help establish the national and ethnic consciousness of the Jewish nation. So did the nation get their theology from God, but God gave them a sense of ethnicity and their morals as well. And so these false teachers were saying, you have to do all these things. You have to obey all these laws. And Paul strongly forbids them, the Colossian Christians, to come under these regulations. They may seem spiritual, but here it goes. The spiritual life is a matter of relationship with Christ and the heart's commitment to Him. To consider these matters as necessary to the Christian life would undermine the work of Christ on the cross. In other words, if human effort is effective, the work of God is unnecessary. The biggest thing about your spiritual walk and your growth in spiritual things is your relationship with Christ and your heart's commitment to Him. Look what he says about these things. Look in the text. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. A shadow is less significant than the object which causes it. I mean, you can go out, well, the sun's not shining today, but you go on a nice sunny day and you'll see a shadow of yourself. Would I consider the shadow more significant than I do the actual person who's causing the shadow in the first place? No, I, I, I love that person. If my wife is standing in the sun, do I love that shadow more than her? No, that's just the shadow of my wife. Who I really care about, who I really love, is the person that's causing that shadow. Do you follow? And that's the illustration he's using here. All these things came as a shadow. A mere representation of what is to follow. And the point was there was to be clearly pointing to what was to come. They provided a representation of the new covenant object. Now it was vague, but it was enough to point people to the reality. So when they saw the object itself, they could recognize it for what it was. And if you go back and look at the Old Testament law, the Old Testament in general points to Christ. And the fulfillment that Christ brings to everything. Everything points to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ, and the New Testament points back to Christ. He goes on to say, let no one keep defrauding you or deciding against, or as the NIV puts it, disqualify you. Following such teaching would lead to loss of joy and spiritual benefits of the relationship to Christ, who is the head. Look what it says, by delighting in self-abasement, pious self-denial, or NIV, false humility. They had joyful commitment to these spiritual rigors which claimed to produce a higher form of worship. And the false teachers joyfully committed to this. Not only would they do this, but then they would consider themselves superior to you, and they would let you know it. Look, it's okay in your walk where you're at now, but if you really want to know God, have a fullness of God, then you have to do these things. 
Now, the next one gets a little confusing. If you look at it, the worship of angels. Well, does that mean they're worshiping angels? No. They had a commitment to a, a, uh, a higher form of worship, or as though they perceived it as. Now, consistent with Jewish traditions, angels were higher than humans, and the angels worshiped and served God. The false teachers, what they were doing, they were saying to the people, look, we know these things, and now we can have the same experience, the same type of worship that the angels have for God. In other words, you can be on the, on the level with angels as far as how we worship God. It's all about a higher form of worship. But in order to do that, it required severity to the flesh. And these things became a way of being spiritually superior to everybody else. And they'll let you know it. Look what he says, taking his stand order and going in detail about visions he has seen. The false teachers were inducing spiritual experiences and hoping to make them the norm of worship. And that's a spiritual treadmill. Because the seeker of these experiences can never be satisfied when the experience itself becomes a hermeneutic and authority, so-called spiritual experiences, is everything. Inflated or conceived without cause, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, that fleshly mind, the natural mind, the unspiritual mind, not aided by the Holy Spirit. This way of thinking puffs up the worshiper without cause, produces a false pride which leads to a haughty disposition, an attitude of superiority and contempt for those who perceive to be inferior or things inferior. They even set a standard for measuring all life's experiences. However, they lacked integrity and authenticity. See, the worship of angels led to a full possessing of these spiritual experiences. These experiences, in turn, produce a way of thinking which prized false religious insight and perpetuates the entire process. So their, their main focus was on the experience itself. Had nothing to do with Christ, all about the experience and how you can experience this higher form of worship by doing these things. It all required severity of the flesh, self-denial, all these things. And if you do these things, then you experience a fullness of God or some type of a higher experience of, of God. Now, you might be fine where you're at. This is what the false teachers were talking about. And Paul is going to say, no, 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 because it's all about Christ. This is what he says, not holding fast to the head. The false teachers were claiming to enrich someone's spiritual life without the source of that life even there, which is Christ. If you want to have a, a more rich spiritual life, if you want to really grow, you, you have to have Christ in your life. And these characteristics reveal the progressiveness of the false teacher's worship goals. Hermeneutic of experience dominated. One experience led to another and a hunger for such experiences fed by the mind of the flesh which delights in experiential religion. This is where the danger is. Anytime we're more focused on the experience that we receive rather than focused on Christ, getting to know Christ more, we have a problem. You can sing all the worship songs you want. You can come to church every time you can. You can look at Scripture, but you cannot grow spiritually without Christ. Look what he says. They're not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body grows with a growth, which is from God. The body cannot grow apart from the head. Imagine for a moment 
that you didn't have a brain. Some of you are saying, well, you don't have much of a brain anyway. Anyway, you didn't have a brain. And your arms and your legs and all your, all your body could just do what it want whenever it wanted. We pretty much get anything done, much less could we ever live. Because right now, your brain is controlling your breathing, your heartbeat. Things that we don't have to think about, the brain is taking care of. And right now, my brain's still in my arm to move. Imagine my arm started moving while we wanted to. See, it brings direction. It brings nourishment. The same way is with Christ. He is the head of the church. The minute we sever the head off and we don't have anything to do with Christ, any growth that we get, we get is going to be misdirected. We will not truly grow with the growth from God. Any suggestion of spiritual growth apart from Christ is false spirituality because we are to be energized and empowered by Christ so that genuine spiritual growth can take place. The spiritual experiences that were advocated by these false teachers had no lasting value and not promote real spiritual growth. It comes with this condition statement. If you died with Christ, why do you submit yourselves? Another way you can translate that, why are you coming under the dominion of this dogma? What is dogma? Strict adherence to something, a, a point of view that's put forth as authoritative, <coughs> excuse me, without adequate grounds. And here's the problem the Colossi was these people were willingly embracing a system that was contrary to Christianity, and the system was enslaving, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It threatened to undermine the very heart of the gospel. Those who followed it did so at their own spiritual demise. It was a system of do's and don'ts about earthly things. And that runs contrary to the nature of the gospel and the freedom that is found in Christ. He said these things, which all refer to things destined to perish with use or by, by being consumed. The false teacher's focus was on the here and now. Those things are objects of human commands and teachings. Contain no more insight than the world of which they are a part. And since our life as a believer in Christ, as a Christian, is never ending, we should focus on eternal things. In fact, in Colossians, the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. These matters which have to be sure of the appearance of wisdom, he says. But here's the point. If you want to boil on to one thing, it's that there are no value against fleshly indulgence or against lusts about what we are dealing with here. Right? You know, the thing is, you can turn off the TV and put yourself in a cave and shut the door, but you'll still have sinful thoughts, will you not? You can, you can turn off the radio, you can do all these things, but the problem is, it's with our heart and mind. That's the reason why Jesus came. I cannot stress this enough. The Old Testament law shows us there is no way we can keep the law. There's no way we can live morally right. We can never do it. We, we can't keep one part of it. So the law shows us and drives us to our needs for a Savior, who's Jesus Christ. And what they're trying to do is saying, in order to experience all this higher form, you have to do all these things. That's contrary to the gospel. And to put it this way, to make it clear so I, I don't get anyone confused, 
You don't do these things to obtain the relationship. A lot of our behavior and morality should be, should be the result of our relationship with Christ, or the results of our relationship with Christ, not the means to obtain it or to earn favor with God. It doesn't matter what you do, dearly beloved. You can't earn favor with God. You can't say, well, I went to church today. God, I did you a favor. No, he doesn't need you. You ever think of that? God doesn't need us. He surely doesn't need me up here stumbling about in his word. But he delights in it. But we're not, we don't do God any favors. And when you start praying like that, we start acting like that, that's very dangerous ground. God, if I do this, God, if you do A, B, C, and D, I'll do E, F, and G. It doesn't work like that. Because it has just a list of do's and don'ts do nothing against temptations that we face. But this appearance of wisdom he's talking about and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. Self-made religion, a self-imposed ritual that brought an emotional and experiential life. For example, the worship of angels. That self-abasement, that false humility. That's when you start doing things, self-denial, severe treatment of the body, when you take asceticism to the nth degree. And there are people in the world who do this. They'll literally take a whip and take their shirt off and beat themselves, trying to beat the flesh into submission. You can beat yourself all you want. You're never going to beat the flesh into submission. The only way that's going to happen is with Christ. And can I just apply this here and today? I do not agree with them changing the names of some of our military installations. They're going to do it? Okay, fine. Go ahead and do it. That makes you feel better. We've seen statues torn down all over our country of, of historical figures. I don't agree with it, but it makes you feel better? Okay, I understand. But if you think just by changing the name of a military installation, and if you think just by tearing down a statue is going to change people's minds and hearts, you are mistaken and you are wrong. The only person who can do that is... Jesus Christ through your heart. That's the reason why He came not only to forgive us our sins, but to give us a new nature. The only reason why you know what's right and wrong now as a believer is because the Holy Spirit convicts you of righteousness and convicts you of sin. They're doing here in Colossae, well, back up, we are doing in some form or fashion the same thing they did back in ancient Colossae. We're so busy as a nation, as a society, trying to fix the external things and make everything look better without addressing the very cause of the problem in the first place. It's like cutting off your head to cure the headache. Well, that's stupid. If you want to really change things, you have to change the heart of the individual. And we'll say it again, the only person who can change the heart of man is God himself. And we, we see it happening in our churches. We, we think if we worship this way, if we... If we do that this way, if we, if we have a revival, we do this. Now, those things, I'm not saying they're wrong. But where's our truth faith at? And when you read this text, I invite you, go back and read it later this week and really pick it apart. These false teachers are trying to lead the group and the church into saying, hey, yeah, Christ is good, but you have to do these other things. It's Christ. You don't want anything to him or take anything away. See, this false wisdom and practices did not curb the desires of the flesh. Only spoke to the environment, not the heart. Only trying to change the environment. 
The flesh cannot be conquered through such practices. Therefore, the system itself is completely flawed in what it promises. In other words, Paul is saying what they're telling you, they promise you one thing, but it can never come through because it's flawed, because it doesn't address the heart. Which Jesus himself said, Go back and look in Mark chapter 17. It's not what goes in your mouth and your stomach that defiles you. What defiles you is coming out of your mouth because that reveals the heart. You can step that a step further, and you've heard me tell the kids this. You squeeze the orange, you get orange juice. But when life really squeezes you, that's when you're going to see what's really in the heart. When we speak, we reveal our heart. My mouth was terrible. You can ask my wife. Brooke might remember some of it. But I'll go back and I'll listen to myself. I hear these guys at work. And the GD and ML, all this other stuff. I'm just cringing. Do you realize what you're saying? You're revealing your heart. Do you seriously want God to damn something or somebody? Do you realize what you're saying and the implications of it? I'm chasing a rabbit here, but we have strayed so far as a society where we think words don't mean anything. They do mean a lot. They reveal your heart. And people talk without thinking about it. And I like social media, and I use it to promote the church and other things. But one downside of social media is there's no accountability. People put stuff on social media that they probably never say to your face. And there's no reflection of speech. I know how you say it. You can say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I mean, but you don't get that in the written page. You don't know that. But I want to ask you a question, and I, I pray and I hope that you take it very seriously. What is your Christianity like? What does your spiritual growth look like? What's your spiritual journey look like? Is it focused on yourself or focused on Christ? Are you a list keeper or a grace giver? Christianity is not a matter of what you can do. It's all about what has been done for you. Christ has done it all. He's provided salvation. We are, we are justified in that moment for our holy God. And he gave us the tools that we need for sanctification. We have now the Holy Spirit living inside of us, leading us in the truth, convicting us on righteousness and sin. There's a illustration I heard a while back. Do you remember the last one of the last things Jesus said on the cross, as we see in Scripture? It is finished. Now, if you look back in the Old Testament, you'll see God's wrath uh, pictured with a with a cup or a bowl. Like God's wrath, He poured His cup of wrath or His bowl of wrath over the people. You see that in the book of Revelation, seven bowls of of uh, in the Revelation when He pulls pulls. Oh, excuse me, pours out his wrath. So think for a moment. Think of a tsami, a tidal wave, if you will, that is so high that you cannot even see the top of it. And so wide, you can look to your right and to your left. It looks like it just goes on forever. And as it's coming at you, you notice that the water is receding clear off the beach way out there because the wave is so high. And you know no matter what you do, you cannot run from it. You can't escape it. When that Wave hits, you are going to die. There's no way around it. And you see it coming at you. This huge tidal wave. And you're standing there, and you can see it coming. 
Now think of Christ on the cross for a second. That wave is God's wrath and His judgment against sin. Jesus took all that. And so He took a huge cup or a bowl and He's being crucified and put to death for our sin. He's drinking the cup of all that, that big huge wave. That's all God's wrath. He's drinking it all down Himself, putting all that on Himself. And when He takes everything there is to take, He's done everything He needed to do. Everything's been done the way Scripture prophesied. He's done everything that needs to be done to satisfy God's wrath and His anger against sin. It's although He took the, the cup over and placed it down and said, It is finished. What old laws are you keeping on the books? What are some things you're still trying to keep? (coughs) This never ends. You may have a a problem here. God says, give that to me. I'll share this with you out of my personal experience. The place where you feel the most tension, the most chaos, that's where God is saying, quit trying to deal with it yourself. Give it to me. See, our problem is we think we can do all this ourselves. No. We desperately need God. We desperately need our Savior. If you're trying to do it by yourself, you will fail. You will fall. And you get in that big old free fall of guilt and shame, and you're never set free. When you give your life to Christ, it is being set free. That means you're perfect? No. When you start allowing the Holy Spirit to work and change you. A lot of things when I became a Christian just went away. Other things, as they came up, God worked with me on. And He's still working on me. And guess what? He's still working on you. Isn't that wonderful? God never gives up. No matter how much we continue to fall down, He says, I love you. Now I must warn you, there is a time coming when that's going to stop. And none of us in this room, none of us online, Nobody knows when that day may come. There is two variables that no one in this room has any control of. Number one is the time of the second coming of Christ. He will come like a thief in the night. And number two, our own physical death. We don't know what it's going to be. I'm going to end with this question. If you knew you only had a month to live, would you change anything about your daily activity or what you're doing. Anything you change. This speaks to me as well. If there's anything I need to change, I need to change it anyway because the reality is I don't know how much time I got. I must be ready because my groom is going to come take his bride away. And I want to be found with him. It's an urgency about it. If you give your life to Christ, as I showed the kids, you can you can hear all this, but until you trust Him and you sit down and you go into His arms, you really find that rest. 
Or you're being like these false teachers. If I just look like this, if I just say this, if I just do that, if I just do this, if I just have that. You never get satisfied. It's always something else. If you've done that, how's your Christian walk look like? Are you growing? And only you can answer this question. How's your growth? I take preaching very seriously, but if you're only coming on Sunday morning to hear me preach and you're not doing anything else, you're setting yourself up for failure. You've got to be in Bible study. Sunday school is a great place to go. Read the Bible on your own. Tons of devotionals out there, but you've got to be in it for yourself. What is God asking you to do today? Maybe ask you to step out of your comfort zone. I don't know. That's between you and Him. Once again, I'll say it, and we'll have a prayer. The main part of this text is that if human effort could ever get it done, then the work of God was unnecessary. The point is, human effort can never get it done. It can never be good enough. Even Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's the, that's the Father in heaven. That's the reason he came. That's the reason we have the gospel. There's freedom in letting go. God, here it all is. Help me. And he will. One step at a time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you, dear God, you never give up on us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, your only son, and all that he has done and is doing on our behalf. Father, I pray that you would knock down the walls and break every chain that might be holding anyone back. Dear God, that they may found they may find true freedom in Christ. But they'll give up trying to do it all on their own, but realize they need you and they desperately need a Savior. Father, I pray there's anyone in this room or in the sound of my voice that needs to make a decision today, no matter what that may be, dear God, I pray that you give them the confidence and the boldness to step up and to step out and say, I trust you, God. I trust you. I give you everything. May that happen here today in this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?